It's all about Southampton. The So So Show with Zoe Hansen and Simon Clark. Hello and welcome to another episode of Southampton's podcast, The So So Show. It's entertainment, news and interviews with a unique Southampton flavour, hosted as ever by her, Zoe Hansen. And him, Simon Clark. I do sound better, don't I? You do. I've had a touch of the Covid. Anyone would think <laughs> that you were swinging the lead last week. Oh, no, stop. I, I was quite poorly. I, I had to listen back to the podcast a couple of times, ep- episode 27, because um, I couldn't really remember recording <laughs> it. You know, As much as I said, oh, it's all right, it's all right, I, I was not very well. I'll be honest, when I saw you on your doorstep Friday when I dropped round a Mackie D's, yeah. you did look pretty rough. <laughs> There's nothing like your mates to give you that big ego boost, is there? That, that'll be the only time I'll ever be able to say that to you. Yeah, but you you didn't have COVID at the time, love. Yeah, well, that's it. I thought when I got it that I just had sort of like a fluey cold. And had I not gone for a test, you know, let this be a warning, go for that test. Because had I not gone for that test, I would have just carried about, carried on about my business um, with blooming COVID. And it was rotten. But can I tell you the worst bit about it? You know, having to sort of isolate for two weeks in your house, you want all of your home comforts, you know, because putting the bin out has become a luxury, walking to the end of the drive with me rubbish. <laughs> so so you want some nice home cooked food and stuff like that. I made this really hot curry and um, I love a curry and I had it with naan bread and it was a beautiful chicken jalfrezi. Chicken jalfrezi with no sense of taste is disgusting because you imagine just the texture of it with no taste. It's just rotten. Mm. And I was thinking, okay, well, what else is there that I could eat that I might quite like? Okay, chocolate, I'll try that. That tastes like plasticine without any taste, you know, right? You know, I was thinking in the end, well, maybe I just will eat plasticine. And I still haven't lost any weight. What is that about? <laughs> well, that would be the possibly the only benefit I would have thought that would have come out of this experience. But yeah. um, it's clearly affected your sense of uh, taste, but not your appetite. No, exactly. But at least you are getting this out of the way now so that your sense of taste has fully returned in time for all those gorgeous Christmas foods. Oh, yes. And do you know what? My friends have been lovely. They've been dropping in shopping for me. And uh, they have also dropped in the Asda, the M&S and the Tesco Christmas food catalogues. So I've just been devouring that in my mind, really. I got given by a mate of mine the little Christmas food catalogue the other day. Oh, yeah? And I was thinking, at what point in my life did I start getting excited about Christmas food brochures? (laughs) And when did they become a currency that you thought other people might like? (laughs) Wrap one up for someone. (laughs) (laughs) It's the gift that keeps on giving. There is, I think it's Lidl that are doing the Ferrero Rocher dessert. Have you seen this? Tell me about the Ferrero Rocher dessert. <laughs> so so it's a frozen dessert and it's a big Ferrero Rocher and then it's got ice cream and stuff in inside it. And yes, apparently it's amazing. And they're saying that within the next fortnight, we should know whether or not families will be able to get together for Christmas. And and I know for every family that are clinging on to the hope that they will be able to get together as normal at Christmas, there's going to be at least one husband, wife or child hoping that they get a year off. From yeah, I bet. You can bet your life. They really don't want to see the in-laws. 
Yes, there's plenty of people that will tell the in-laws that there is still the rule of six going on. There'll be plenty of people suddenly <laughs> developing a cough and a temperature on Christmas Eve. I'm hoping that the government come out with some really silly rules. So it's not about how many households you can have for around for Christmas Day dinner, but it's more to do with, right, everybody in the house needs to be up by 5am. You have to sing carols at 11am <laughs> on your doorstep. And then um, you must listen to the Queen's speech and you must all do Don't Stop Me Now on karaoke on Christmas evening. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine if we had a mass national sing-along to away in a manger on our doorsteps at 11 o'clock on Christmas Day morning? Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> It, right, we could start it right here. Southampton, let's try it. <laughs> let's make this the sparkliest Christmas ever. Let's get all those decorations up. It's going to look fantastic. And then all of us out there singing, Away in our <laughs> Right, let's get our first guest on. He is the author of a new book about how to stay one step ahead of the cyber criminals. Paul Newton is a magician, a mind reader and general mischief maker from Hythe. And he's written a book about ways you can use a few simple tricks to protect yourself in a world where crime is becoming more complex. And that's why he decided to write the book. I had a lot of people booking me for keynote speaker jobs and companies calling me for consultancy stuff. Then I was getting people like the Women's Institute wanting my help, but no budget. And I realised there's a lot of people out there that can't afford a consultant. They can't afford, you know, thousands of pounds on a project. But if I could put something out there that costs under £15, that could help a lot of people without a lot of investment. So that was the main driving focus. So when you say the WI were booking you, these were groups who wanted to learn more about the particular skills that you'd cultivated. Yeah, yeah. So so I think I've done one talk for WI. There's a lot of little groups all around the country that know they've got some elderly guests that come there, but they don't understand security, whether it's on computers, whether it's on the home. And actually, when you're talking to little old ladies, one of my favourite ones is... How many of you have written your passwords down? And they all put their hand up. And then you say, right, and is it just underneath your computer, probably in the top drawer to the right? And they all look scared like I've just read their minds. But it's because humans are predictable. So so these guys are literally saying to all the thieves out there, if you see our computer, that's where our passwords are. And just teaching them not to do that is massive. What else will we learn? From reading it. So, um, actually, Jesse, who's my marketing guy and he's my photographer, he and I, he moans at me about this because the best thing for marketing is to target exactly who you want to go to. The annoying thing here is this book covers stuff from personal, it covers business, it covers SMEs, it covers massive corporates. There's a bit in there for everybody because we've tried to cram as much information in there as possible while still having fun as well. And so we've had a few beta readers of the book already. And something that I've loved is they've all said, we can literally hear you saying this. It's written like I'm talking to you. And I try and keep things in plain English. So it's easily accessible for someone who's not too into jargon. Oh, God, yes. And actually, again, uh, Jesse's important in the book. He appears in the book every so often. If a little speech bubble comes up, it's Jesse saying something. So there's a bit where we talk about tokenization. Now, to be honest with you, for me, that's just magic within computers that the technology geeks understand, okay? And that's how I treat it. 
And then Jesse comes in with a bubble saying, right, tokenization, it does this, 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 this. And mate, I haven't even read it properly, <laughs> to be honest with you. But, but that's what we need. You need the people who understand how to make you secure and the people who can then go and do the wizardry on the computers to make it happen. I think the world is crying out for books like this because as things become more complicated, many people become confused and befuddled by it all. Yeah. So something that puts it out quite simple for them, there's definitely a market for it. Yeah. Are you not worried that you're giving too much away in this book that you'll be diddling yourself out of public speaking work? No, to be honest with you. When I do public speaking, I mean, I know you've seen me do magic shows. When I'm public speaking, I, I teach some things, I tell some stories, and I do visual magic as well, which means I will steal pin numbers and passwords right in front of people and in the middle of crowds of hundreds. Mm. So it will never take over that. But it, it's like I said, the book is for those people who can't come along to those seminars, okay. the people who can't make it. You think about it. You and I have been to a lot of conferences and it's not just the ticket price of the conference. It's the travel there. It's the whole day out to be there. A lot of people can't afford to do that. Even small business owners can't walk away from their business for a day. What was the biggest challenge when it came to writing a book? Because this is your first book, isn't it? The biggest challenge was my unbelievable expectations. I honestly thought, oh, I just have to write down a few words. That'll be fine. It's really not. I have no idea how anyone got me to sit down and write that many words. I imagine lockdown probably had a lot to do with helping you get this book finished. Normally, uh, every weekend I'm travelling the country somewhere to do a gig, and I love that lifestyle and I really do miss it. But do you know what? When lockdown hit and somebody said we could be sat here for months, Jesse turned around and said, it's time to write the book. The thing you've been short of before is time. You now have time. The fact is that I then didn't have any money because the entertainment industry just went through the floor. Mm. I looked at doing a crowdfunder to help launch it. The crowdfunder was so ridiculously successful. I mean, you know, blew past my, my top expectations that it meant we had the funds to do this and to produce it in a way that actually I'm really proud of it. I, I still look at it and just go, I can't believe we've, we've made a book. The first printed copies arrived this week. How did it feel to open the box? Weird, weird. And when I opened the box, it, it was typical Paul fashion, okay? I opened the box, lifted up the flaps of cardboard, and the book was upside down. So the first thing I saw was the back of the book <laughs> and a couple of other people's quotes on what they thought of it. And it was just, seriously, it just hit me in the gut. Something rotten. Um, and I took it out, turned it over, saw the cover... I just looked at it and thought, it's a real book. Up until that point, it felt like it was a, an editable document that would never stop in my life. Today, actually, I'm posting out the copies to all of the crowdfunder pledges. It's amazing. So when's the book available and where can we find it? Right. Uh, so it's already available on Kindle, uh, in Amazon and other good outlets trying to do something with bookstore right now to see if we can get some local bookshops earning some money out of this. Oh, fantastic. We uh, talked about that a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. We did, mate. Yes, you did. And actually, it was you that made me go and look at this. So I'm trying to do something with them so that we can pretend the book is almost in some local bookstores and help out some small business owners as well. Mm. Um, That's fantastic. Fingers crossed. I'll keep you updated. If that works, I'll keep you updated. 
but the main release date is the 1st of December. And all you will have to do is search mental theft, all one word, wherever you look for books. That's Paul Newton from Hive. The So So Show with Zoe Hansen and Simon Clark. So I'm a celebrity. We all know that Christmas is coming when I'm a celebrity starts on the telly. Are you enjoying it, not being in Australia? I actually am. Go on. I think they've done a really good job of trying to keep that programme yeah. on the air, even though they've had to keep it in this country. It, for me, that castle looks a bit plasticky. You think there's quite a lot of prefabricated sets involved? Yes, that's what it looks like to me. Like the tiles there, they look like they're carpeted. You know, I just think they're in too much luxury. We know that when they're out in the, the Australian bush, you know, you've got snakes sliding underneath them and you've got lizards coming through and, I don't know, wallabies or something. Do you know what it is? <laughs> it's because we've all been to ruined castles. Right. And we know they're cold and they've got weeds growing. I was expecting it to be like a ruin of a castle rather than something that looks like it's not too shabby. Yes, and and that's what you want. You want one of those places that you absolutely detested going on a school trip to. <laughs> <laughs> one of them where they go, oh, you make a drawing of it. Oh, gosh, what time is lunch, Miss? <laughs> I want to see them sleeping in sleeping bags underneath some tarpaulin that's been lashed against the side of a partially demolished wall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Take sleeping bags out for a start. Come on. <laughs> They've only gone like a hundred miles tops, all of these people. And now you're giving them a lovely warm sleeping bag. Give over. Come on. And you know full well Anton Decker staying at the Celtic Manor. <laughs> Absolutely gutted that they can't play a round of golf in the morning before they have to go to work each day. <laughs> yes. But anyway, so Shane Ritchie, I've met Shane Ritchie, but I didn't meet Shane Ritchie when I was on the radio and doing all of that stuff. I met Shane Ritchie when I was about six years old and I was away at Pontins Breen Sands down in Somerset. Oh, wow. And we were there for Christmas uh, with my folks and my grandparents and whoever. And Shane Ritchie was a blue coat there. I had a feeling this is the direction the story was going to go in when you said that you were a child when you met him. But carry on, please tell us the story. Can you remember much about him? I don't really remember that much about him, but I, I remember going through the photo albums a few years ago and looking and thinking, that's Shane Ritchie. And he had me in one arm and my brother in the other arm. And I was like, that is Shane Ritchie. And within about six months, Shane Ritchie, I don't know if you remember, he came to do Panto at the Mayflower Theatre. That's right, with Jesse. So, so I came along to, to interview him and I brought along this picture of me when I was six and Shane Ritchie was probably about 19, 20. And I, and I showed him this picture and I was like, look, I've met you before. <laughs> Here's a picture of you being a blue coat. How crazy is that? I bet he loved that. He did, he did. And I said to him, I've got a feeling that you um, snogged my auntie that holiday as well. <laughs> There are some things that are better left unsaid. <laughs> I mean, with the reputation that blue coats have, he won't have remembered anyway. <laughs> and there is the voice of experience as someone who's also been a holiday camp entertainer. The, the fact that he used to be 
an old school camp entertainer really shows when you watch him on stage when he's doing pantos and things like that i thought uh, he and jesse wallace were absolutely fantastic in the mayflower panto thing. yeah they were and that's it look all of these people that have, that have worked on these holiday camps you know you look at stephen mulhern they just know how to to play an audience to to respond to connect to an audience they're just brilliant at it talking of the mulhern by the way do we know whether or not you made the final cut for in for a penny no idea. And I don't think it's probably on until next spring. I saw it in the schedules a couple of weeks ago and thought, oh, I must ask Zoe if she's been told mm. whether she's in it yet. It's an old series. We've already uh, seen these ones. So I'm interested to know, while you've been in lockdown, whether or not you got the Christmas decorations out. I have resisted the temptation to get the Christmas decorations out. It would be nice if I could get the Christmas decorations out and feel like everything's really sparkly and lovely for for just a week and then put them away again for a couple of weeks. But I just cannot get my head around putting your Christmas decorations up that early. For me, they go up at the start of December. First weekend of December and, and, and then off we go. What about you? Well, it seemed to be quite the thing last weekend on social media. Yes. It was full of pictures of people putting up their Christmas decorations already. Yeah, yeah. And have you have you got your tinsel out? Nah, <laughs> I'll do it maybe the week before Christmas. The week before Christmas. But, but this is the thing, right? So if it seems to me that if you decorate your house too early, you bring your decorations back down, like, Boxing Day. I'm not that bad. I mean, last year it was literally three or four days before Christmas because I'd had some building work done and the room wasn't ready to have a tree in it until literally just before Christmas. But um, this year I might be a little bit earlier with it, but I need to do a little bit of painting in the room where I'm going to stick the tree. Well, put it put it where you need the painting done. <laughs> Nobody will see it. <laughs> I could do Completely that, Completely yeah. cover it in baubles, you know, that's... I'm going to wait until maybe a couple of weeks before Christmas, but I enjoy. I intend to enjoy the lead into Christmas this year because last year just it wasn't. This year I intend to, to to enjoy it a little bit more, but probably not until maybe a fortnight before Christmas. Right, because you're normally DJing at Christmas parties and stuff like that, aren't you? You know, it's been really strange to not be at thirty different Christmas parties, right. which is normally what it would be for me. So you should set up some sort of virtual Christmas party that people can join into or you can have companies sign up to and you're doing, you know, you're doing a Christmas party somewhere. I can't be bothered to get my decks out of the cupboard. <laughs> I had to take them out in September to get everything pat tested and it was like revisiting a former life oh. as I was moving all these lighting fixtures and speakers and other bits and pieces. Like, I vaguely remember these things. I used to load them in the car two or three times a week and now I haven't touched them. Oh. But I tell you what, one person who has got really in the spirit of Christmas already is Paul Sherwood. Have you heard about him? He's the landscaper from Totten who started decorating his house on Cops Close a couple of weeks ago and he's now almost completely covered the whole thing in lights, reindeer and an inflatable Santa. He's brilliant. The pictures of this are amazing. I love it. There's There's a road in Swathling as well. They've 
chosen 24 houses up and down the road and they make up an advent calendar so people can go and see the lights and all of that stuff. Of course, Hedge End used to be home to, well, it still is home to Greyhound Close because they haven't moved it. Yes. But of course, it it can't illuminate anymore because they had major problems with parking and people dumping their cars (laughs) on the verges near the street. Right. And in the end, the council said, you can't do it anymore unless you're going to pay for the upkeep of the verges, which is a shame because they used to raise so much money for charity i know i did drop them a tweet at the start of the week and said come on guys 2020 really needs the greyhound christmas lights to come back oh bless but we'll just have to go around to cops close in totten instead you know it's costing paul sherwood 80 quid a month in extra electricity at the very least we could go around and see his lights too right too right and this year i would like some instruction on how to put up those little icicle snow falling lights because i've got some but i don't know what to put them up with or on do i have to go up on the roof or something don't you need to put little hooks into the um the the fascias which you can then hook them over what do do you do with the hooks well you screw them into the wood and then leave them there all year yeah oh no i don't know if i want to do that let's be honest about it there are some houses in the city where they leave the lights up all year but they just (laughs) don't switch them on yeah. <laughs> Our next guest is a name you may be familiar with if you've been to a club in the city in the last 25 years because he's very much part of the music scene in the city and he's got his own podcast as well. It's DJ Paul Ridney. My story is that I've been I've been based in Southampton all my life. I was given lots of records as a kid. Very geekily took them all into school as a kid and got known for being that kid at school with records. Right. When I got to secondary school, I wanted to deal with the school discos, but the trendy kids wouldn't let me. <laughs> Eventually, um, I got a chance and uh, yeah, people were impressed. I, I started record shopping um, in a record shop called Movement yeah. in Southampton when I was about 16. Right. Served records by a guy called James Abila, who went on to be a very, very big DJ globally. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, eventually started sneaking into clubs and DJing myself. Right. So where where were you DJing then? I mean, it, it, around the sort of, when I was about 18, I suppose, I was playing bars around Southampton. But the the big thing that changed Southampton at the time, because there wasn't really any good venues was uh, was the Orange Rooms opening. Right. And it had a really, really good music policy. Really, really great guys that still run it today. Yep, Gary. Gary and Dan, yeah, they had real trust in good selectors of music. And the Orange Rooms became really, really popular really quickly because the, the city didn't have anything quite like it before. And if you're a DJ, it was one of the places you, you really wanted to play. Yeah. You know, over time, making mixtapes and CDs and kind of passing them to the guys, they eventually gave me a chance. And they opened a bar next door to the Orange Rooms called Mono. Right. I was picked as one of the original residents for Mono. And I think I was a resident there for seven or eight years every Saturday. So from kind of buying a lot of music it was a place I got to play out loads and get to know my records but equally at the same time there was a place called Charlie Parker's in Eastleigh that ran a weekly event called Soap right and with Soap it had like a main room that was techno and then a second room that was house and sort of French house and funky house and again run by an amazing um, promoter called Leslie and it's 
it's where some of my sort of greatest DJ friendships happened. Got to play loads of records and through these venues all sort of across the city, all like-minded DJs were sort of meeting up and sharing record, you know, what records they were into and buying records. Every Saturday morning we would be outside Movement Records, come rain, come shine. And uh, everyone would be in there at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning to buy the latest uh, records. Amazing. And is it like a real nice community of DJs? You know, it's like some businesses and some industries you find that people sort of fight against each other or, you know, there's a bit of backstabbing and whatever. But actually, it sounds like there was a real nice community. There is a really nice community. And I think the thing that's been awesome about it is fast forward 20 plus years, most of the DJs are all still in contact you know or or talking to each other about music production or there's always a few people that want to do their own thing and all the rest of it but generally speaking certainly from a producer side it's very very supportive of each other yeah there was an article in the sun a few years back where there was i think there was about 12 different producers from Southampton all in a picture together where we were all sort of doing our own thing and having some kind of success the other great thing that was happening at a similar time was Craig, David, um, and I remember seeing him in uh, a place called the Old Oriental, which was down near Ocean Village. And again, it was, it was, um, Zabila was, was DJing and Craig was kind of freestyling. And this was, this was before any of the Artful Dodger stuff. You know, he was just this amazing vocalist from the city that people, you know, if you kind of heard heard about him, he was this, like, oh, wow, Craig's just this incredible singer. I've got to know uh, Mark Hill of Artful Dodger incredibly well over, over the years, and we've written music together. But he sort of then filled in the gaps of obviously how they met Craig. He, he and Pete made, uh, met Craig and started to make records as the Artful Dodger and how they had Rewind. And then us other DJs were like, Oh my goodness, someone from Southampton's actually made a hit record. So you've made a podcast as well. Um, What's your podcast all about? My podcast is called Secrets of a Dance Hit. Obviously, I've been making records about 20 odd years, I suppose. And um, my dream was always to be as as successful as, let's say, the Artful Dodger, you know, have a record that, that tickled the chart. Yeah. And there's been a couple of maybes, but I've never, I've never managed to do it and I started to doubt my own like ideas and do I really have the talent for this right so obviously over the years you get to know DJs and people that have had big records so I started to ask fellow producers who've become friends can I interview you about how you made the record and what was your inspiration and stuff like that so over what we up to 12 episodes I've had guests like Michael Gray for The Weekend, Artful Dodger for Rewind, um, Jamiroquai for Cosmic Girl, um, Black Legend for You See the Trouble With Me. Uh, more recently, Todd Terry did uh, spoke about everything but The Girl Missing, which was he was the guy who did the remix on that. Uh, Stonebridge for when he did Ro- Robin S. Show Me Love. Uh-huh. Um, just big, big records. Because I'm like, what's the secret sauce? What, what did you do to make that record... You know, the defining hit that it is. Um, Transpires, they just were generally in studios having fun and making tunes. And if that idea kind of came together quite quickly, it was generally because there was some magic there. And yeah, you need the planets to align a little bit and luck on your side. Cool. But if you make a good tune, a good tune is generally a good tune. And every single one of them that you've just mentioned, you go, yes. 
That was an absolute smash, right? That is a big hitter. Exactly. And you know it as soon as, you know, as soon as you're mentioning the title, it's playing in my head. Yeah, exactly. You're kind of like, that's a big tune for me. It's a go-to record if I was DJing at a big party. So what What was their thought when they were sat in the studio? Where, where were they at? So the, the podcast basically explores and, and asks people what their inspiration was. And also it's a bit geeky. If you want to know what equipment they were using, which I do because I'm obviously a massive nerd and want to, want to find out how they did it, that's in there too. DJ Ridney talking about the dance music scene in Southampton, which is still there even if you haven't been able to go out and necessarily enjoy it. It was great hearing all the names of those heritage clubs yeah proper memories right there and his passion for music and his passion for Southampton just comes through he's so interesting honestly I could talk to him for hours and hours and and I did actually yeah you're telling me that was one of the longest interviews we've ever done maybe we should just put the whole thing out as a special one week. yeah maybe and it just goes to show you're such a cheesy quaver because you would chat to him for ages about dance music I love it I love it and his podcast Secrets of a Dance Hit honestly these are the massive songs that you will know they are anthemic and he talks to the producers um, and the makers of these songs to find out what the inspiration was behind it to see if there's some sort of formula behind these tracks i'm two episodes in it's really really good stuff and that's not just because i'm you know a bit of a music geek anyway yeah yeah on that subject give us just a second i'm just uh i knew you were distracted what are you doing i'm bidding on some stuff on an online auction an auction for what it's like a a clearance sale of an old broadcast center so it's it's bbc cardiff isn't it bbc (laughs) cardiff That has closed down and moved to another building. So BBC Radio Cardiff has closed down. And the television centre. And the television centre. You're going to buy a TV camera as well. Well, there's loads of that sort of stuff in here. But the thing that's really interesting is the stuff that you wouldn't expect to sell is going for an absolute fortune. Like what? They've cleaned out the entire kitchen at BBC Cardiff. They're selling the kitchen. The elements from it, the stainless steel food prep surfaces, the ovens, there's a massive freestanding food mixer. Is this what you're buying? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm just bidding on <laughs> microphones and paying way too much for them. Do they say BBC on them or not? No, no, no. They're, they're just, you know, and the ironic thing is some of these items have sold for far more than you would pay if you were buying them brand new. Hilarious. So I'm being sensible. I think they're missing a trick because if this auction was ending at 10 o'clock at night instead of 10 o'clock in the morning, yeah. there'd be people on their bidding when they'd had a little bit of Lady Petrol or a couple of pints or whatever, and um, <laughs> they'd be more inclined to Lady waste an absolute Petrol. fortune on a Mercedes Sprinter van that's got a satellite dish on the top, which is currently £4,500. <laughs> well, why not? Have we got an outside broadcast van for the So So Show? <laughs> Get that branded up. That would look awesome. Oh, man. Shall we do it? Shall we do it? Come on. Well, we've got 15 minutes left and you better have deep pockets. (laughs) There's leather sofas. There's all sorts of gubbins. So, yeah, if we wanted to turn this podcast into a television show, we'd be sorted for a couple of hundred quid. It sounds amazing. It sounds just wonderful. Uh, it sounds really dull and boring, but I've just got this flight case I really want. So. I really want it. Really well, I hope that you get it. Well done, you. Now, have you got a dishwasher? Yes, I have. Yes, yes, yes. Do you just throw stuff in there willy-nilly or do you have a certain way of loading it? Um, I have certain ways of loading it depending on 
how what the ratio of dishes to plates are. <laughs> I've got an issue with cutlery and my kids have been ribbing me about this for weeks. So basically, it's got a cutlery tray that goes right at the very top of the dishwasher. Oh, you've got a really posh one. When I load it, I always group the cutlery together. So the teaspoons there, spoons here, forks there, knives over here. And they were like, yeah, I could tell you've loaded the dishwasher because everything's in the right order. And I say, yeah, I could tell I've loaded the dishwasher because you two never do. Right. But <laughs> from my point of view, if you group everything together, when you get it out to dry it, you can get it out, run it over a tea towel, chuck it in the drawer, and it's so much quicker than having to go one from here, one from there, one from here. Right. I thought I was going mad and I was the only person who did this but I stuck the picture up on our Facebook page and it seems that that is the correct way to be doing it grouping stuff together. Do you pair up socks before you put them in the washing machine? No but I do hang them (laughs) on the airer in pairs because that saves your time as well. Do you? Although does it? Does it? Because the thing is you're still going to have to pair them anyway whatever point of the procedure it is but I just think it's a lot easier when they're in the basket to do this and to do that. I'll tell you what the best thing about having a cutlery tray in your dishwasher is. Yeah. Since I had it I've never had that moment where you've accidentally had a prong of a fork go between (laughs) your nail and your thumb. Ah! Or it just takes a slice out of your thumb just as you're putting a plate in the back. This is where trays and dishwashers are far better than cutlery baskets. So basically, today you have sold me um, a dishwasher with a cutlery tray and an outside broadcast. But only if we're quick, because we need to get in there in the next five minutes if you want that sprinter with a dish. Right, you've got to go and do that. Go get your flight case, you. Go get your flight case. Well, listen, thank you for listening, especially as the last five minutes of this has been a little bit niche. Um, If you uh, want to find us on social media, we're on all the usual streams. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter as well. We love interacting with you and finding out what's going on in your lives. Please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend because the more, the merrier. Have a great week, Zoe. And you, Simon. You've been listening to Zoe Hansen and Simon Clark on Southampton's podcast, The So So Show. 